Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like expanding capacity for sustainable aviation fuel and biodiesel in Washington state and bringing massive new infrastructure online in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I'm Michelle Goldberg. I'm Ross Douthat. I'm David Leonhardt. And this is The Argument. This week... Have we been underestimating Bernie Sanders? He has the support he's always had. He has the donors he's always had. He has the organization he's always had. And he has the strength that not all of his rivals have had. Then, has the future failed? We talk about the possible end of technological wonder. Technology itself has just become this looming menace. And finally, a recommendation. This book is like if Graham Greene and Spike Lee had a baby. He finished a strong second in the 2016 Democratic primaries. He has the largest group of donors, 1.2 million of them. And polls have consistently shown him at or near the top of this year's field. Even so, Bernie Sanders has sometimes seemed like an afterthought in this year's campaign, at least to the media and to Democrats supporting other candidates. But now something seems to be shifting. His campaign raised $34 million in the final quarter of last year, more than any of his rivals did and more than any candidate has in any quarter so far. The betting markets now give Sanders roughly a one in three chance of winning the nomination, almost identical to Joe Biden's chances. So today we're going to talk about Bernie, his strengths and weaknesses, and whether we've underestimated his appeal to voters. Ross, why do you think Sanders has now emerged as a favorite? To just take up the framing question, I don't think we, and by we, I mean you and I and Michelle here on The Argument, the best political podcast in America, (laughs) have ever (laughs) underestimated Bernie Sanders. I think we've actually done a pretty good job throughout of taking him very seriously as a candidate. I think we treated him as a plausible front runner um, in the period when it seemed like Joe Biden might not get in the race. And obviously when his polling numbers dipped and Warren seemed to be on the rise, you know, there was some reason to think that that he might fade. But I think overall, this new interest in Sanders is just the rest of political media finally catching up <laughs> to where we've been all along. Um, Or maybe it's me catching up to the two of you, because I think I did underestimate him a little bit. I mean, particularly after the heart attack, it felt like a lot of his old supporters were drifting to Warren, if not someone else, and and that it felt like this was going to be Biden versus Warren versus maybe some surprise. Yeah, no, I mean, I think think that's that's fair. But in fairness to you, he had a heart attack, right? You know, I talked to fervent Sanders supporters right when news of the heart attack was coming out, who sort of even they assume that this that this could be the end. I think his strengths are sort of the same strengths he's always had. And when we talk about a Sanders surge, you know, he's not tearing ahead in the polls. He's sort of bobbed up a little bit as Warren has dropped. But it's more that people have sort of come around to the realization that nobody else is coming to be, you know, a 30 percent of the early vote candidate. And in a race that is, 
you know, that has Joe Biden as the polling leader, Bernie is a very strong candidate because he has the support he's always had. He has the donors he's always had. He has the organization he's always had. And he has the strength in across multiple early states and multiple constituencies that not all of his rivals have had. Michelle, what part of Bernie's campaign most excites you? Well, look, I mean, if Bernie Sanders was elected president, um, it would be one of the happiest days of my life. And I say that as somebody who's been, you know, kind of critical of Bernie Sanders in 2016, occasionally in 2020. I agree with him policy-wise on basically everything. I don't agree with his theory of change, this idea that he's going to be able to pass all of this extremely ambitious legislation. I don't think that his campaign takes ideological disagreement seriously enough, right? I think they tend to believe that all disagreement with them is somehow a result of avarice. But, you know, the fact that there could be a democratic socialist president is something that has been inconceivable for most of my life. And the fact that he has such strong support among young people, right, would bring an infusion of energy into our politics. Um, The thing that kind of people who support other candidates in 2016 and 2020 have found very frustrating about Bernie Sanders supporters, you know, their sort of like relentlessness, the fact that the way they bombard you, this kind of tendentious style of argumentation, um, would be a tremendous asset if Bernie Sanders were the nominee and all of that kind of troll energy was being directed outward at the Republican Party. It could sort of, in some ways, match the energy that Donald Trump was able to draw on in 2016. He seems to me to be like an extremely high-risk, high-reward candidate. You know, I'm also skeptical about this vision that he spins out where he says, look, we're going to get everyone to rise up and overcome the special interests. And and he tells a plausible story of how he did a version of that in Burlington, Vermont. But, you know, getting 50 people to show up at a meeting that previously had three people at it and, and changing the dynamic of, of the meeting in local politics is different from doing that on a national level. So, Michelle, I tend to agree with you. But I guess I wonder what's the alternative for progressive change other than trying to animate more people at the grassroots to overcome some of this entrenched opposition. You know, one of the things that he said during um, his interview with our editorial board, which for listeners were, you know, not part of, but he's he talked about how, you know, I don't call people on their birthday. I, you know, I, I'm kind of not interested in all that bullshit that that kind of grumpiness is kind of charming. But I also think that you do need some of that like unctuous backslapping, personal relationships, arm twisting kind of LBJ stuff. Right. I mean, it was often a knock on Obama that he didn't do that. And then I think the other thing that you need is this kind of technocratic understanding of where the pressure points in the system are. And here's where I'll give my disclaimer that my husband has been consulting for Elizabeth Warren. But You know, if you look at the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, you really have to have a very acute understanding of how the system works and kind of how government can be brought to bear to put pressure on private actors. Yeah. And I do think um, Warren has the most sophisticated understanding of how to use government to change people's lives and also to alter politics. I think that really is a point in her favor. Michelle, you mentioned Bernie's interview with our editorial board a minute ago. And my favorite moment of that was where Bernie didn't know what cancel culture was. And 
it was so authentically Bernie. You could just hear it with his accent sort of saying, what's cancel culture? Right. And in a way, that sort of goes to this argument that Ross has made in the past, that Bernie Sanders is very, very left, obviously, but he doesn't necessarily read to everyone as culturally left, right? And he doesn't speak the sort of language of the online left. Yeah, Ross, I'm interested in how you think about that, because what even though I think of Bernie as being to the left of Elizabeth Warren, I do think, Michelle, I agree with you that he doesn't necessarily present to people who don't follow politics as obsessively as we all do as being to her left, right? He doesn't have the that sort of same progressive speech that she does, which is why she struggled with working class voters in Massachusetts in her Senate elections. Uh, and so I could see how authentic Bernie, just talking about the billionaires, would actually do quite well with those voters. On the other hand, um, he really was steeped in all this left-wing politics for basically his entire career. And it's pretty easy to imagine the the opposition advertisements that the Republicans run on that stuff. Yeah. I mean, the things, the things that Bernie said about communism, the Soviet Union, and American history in the 1980s were extremely radical then. And you know, we haven't had a big vigorous debate about communism outside of certain parts of the internet since, but presumably they'd still be controversial now. But I think it is also the case that there are ways in which, you know, the nature of what we think of as the left has changed, right? So in that interview with our editorial board, there was a moment where people were asking Bernie about immigration. And it was clear from the discussion that even though Bernie has officially evolved towards the Democrats, you know, almost open borders position on immigration. I'm caricaturing here just a little bit. Um, but, you know, he has evolved in his heart of hearts. He still holds what was once the position of organized labor, the New York Times editorial board, a lot of people we think of as the left, Congresswoman Barbara Jordan and so on, that low-wage immigration was bad for American workers. And he sort of returned to versions of that argument even in the conversation with our, our editorial board. And that's the kind of thing I think that's sort of interesting, like sort of dropping those kind of instincts into an American politics that's polarized in, in a very different and more cultural way, I think could matter more than, you know, old statements that he made in the 1980s about the Soviet Union that nobody cares about anymore. I just don't know. I think obviously there's sort of a high level of risk there that at least some Bernie Sanders supporters probably aren't taking into account. The other thing, though, um, is that you know there's also what you might call the the neoliberal shill argument for Bernie, which is basically the argument that the next Democratic president isn't going to be able to get all kinds of sweeping things done, and so what matters most is having a president who can keep the left of the party on board with an agenda of incrementalism. And precisely because, as Michelle was saying earlier, Bernie has this intense cult-like devotion on the left in a way that even Warren doesn't, he's actually the person best positioned to sell incrementalism to the base and prevent a certain part of the party from, you know, fracturing, creating a left-wing Tea Party, you know, whatever scenario you want to spin out. I buy that. And I would add some I would add a second kind of neoliberal argument for Bernie, which is I, I think moderate Democrats sometimes think that their best hope of achieving what they want is just constantly pushing what they want. Right. Um, which is um, clear progressive change that doesn't go too far. But actually, some 
sometimes the way to get moderate change is to go for bigger change. And I think that's a mistake the Democratic Party has made a number of times. And I actually think it's within the realm of plausibility that the best way to get some of the policies that people who think of themselves as more traditional Democrats or moderate Democrats would be to have a president like Sanders or Warren who would be trying to do so much that the fallback would be some of this more moderate change. I do really fear um, with a president like Biden uh, that he wouldn't reach far enough and then he would get even less and it would just all be kind of a big mushy disappointment. And that's part of why I feel so torn because – I do think the odds are that Biden is more likely to beat Trump than Bernie or Warren. I don't think it's a huge difference. Um, but I'm actually more worried about Biden as president than than I am about Bernie, I think. And, and I almost can't believe I'm saying that. Let's spend a minute on the fight between uh, Sanders and Warren. In the end, I don't think it's going to matter that much. And we're recording this before the Tuesday night debate. But I do think there's one interesting part of it, which is Bernie, according to Warren, said that he didn't think a woman could be elected president. And I guess my view is he shouldn't say that even if he thinks it. And if he did actually say that, I think he's wrong. I mean, Hillary Clinton won the popular vote by millions of votes. Um, But I am sort of haunted by this question of how much sexism there continues to be in politics. And the idea that we may emerge this year with Bernie and Biden fighting it out to take on Trump, it feels like that's a legitimate question to wonder about. Where are you each on that? You know, I I think I, as I wrote in my column, I sometimes fear the same thing, right? I mean, just as the 2016 campaign was this, like, masterclass in the power of misogyny, so too is this race. The fact that this story um, has made people so much more angry at Warren than at Bernie, you know, is in a way um, an argument that a woman is indeed at a profound disadvantage. You know, and so part of me, because I think that defeating Trump is such an existential necessity, um, I have really gone back and forth over who the best candidate should be. And that's a big part of it, because I do think that we are a very, very sexist country. Her gender gives her, you know, kind of less of a net when people worry about her strategy, right? Because I think that what you've seen at certain kind of key moments in her campaign, you know, particularly with Medicare for All, it wasn't that people, it wasn't that voters didn't like her plan. It's that they suffered this real crisis of confidence about her electability, right? And the fact that people kind of keep suffering that crisis of confidence, I'm not saying that it's not rational, but part of the crisis of confidence is, is this woman really electable? You know, I so I just think that there is less scope for mistakes. It's much more of a high wire act when you're a woman running, right? I don't think that Elizabeth Warren could have gotten away with what Bernie has done and basically said, no, I'm just not going to release a plan for how I'm going to do Medicare for all. I'm just going to do it. First of all, I agree with you. I, I think female candidates operate with less of a net and less of a margin for error. But I, I think in that debate, what Bernie had going for him was that he seemed to be taking ownership of a reality of the plan, right, by saying it wasn't about the details. It was about him saying like, look, I'm Bernie Sanders, the last honest man in America and I'll tell you it's going to raise taxes. And Warren's brand at that moment was you know, the wonk, the person who had a plan for everything and she got 
sort of it seemed like deliberately evasive for a little while and that sort of cut against the brand she was trying to build. And again, if she were a male candidate or you know a Joe Biden figure with this long history in the party and so on, it might have mattered less. I, I think she was trying to craft a persona and she made a choice there that ended up undermining the persona she was trying to craft, which was crucial to her larger strategy. Okay. Let's leave it there. Now we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. If you had more time in the day, would you take a nap, read a book, talk with a friend? When something's important to you, it's easier to make time for it. Therapy can help you decide what matters most. BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on your schedule. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com opinion today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp.com opinion. I use the New York Times Games app every single day. I love playing Connections. With Connections, I need to twist my brain to see the different categories. I absolutely love spelling bee. Sudoku is kind of my version of lifting heavy weights at the gym. When I can finish a hard puzzle without pins, I feel like the smartest person in the world. It gives me joy every single day. Start playing in the New York Times Games app. You can download it at nytimes.com slash games app. Sometimes for our second subject, we talk about a column that one of us has just written. Today, we're going to talk about a column that Michelle is working on right now, which is about the future and particularly whether the future has failed. The future has not delivered flying cars or unlimited energy or a cure for cancer, but it is delivering these terrible wildfires in Australia and worries about social media disinformation. And so I think a lot of people are starting to sour on this whole notion of the future and particularly technology which was supposed to solve so many of our problems and instead sometimes seems to just be creating new problems. Um, so, Michelle, talk to us about how you're thinking about this question of, is the future failing? Well, you know, I first had this idea when I started reading interviews with William Gibson, the sci-fi writer. After Donald Trump's election, he suffered some sort of block where, you know, reality had so far outstripped dystopian imagination that he kind of couldn't write for a while. And then he eventually, you know, did write this book that's coming out shortly. You heard people talk after the election about us being in the dark timeline. And that's sort of the conceit of this book that we are. And I thought that maybe what he hit on was this idea that kind of, you know, lit up my brain that it's the future itself that has come to seem like a source of horror to a lot of us. Um, at the same time, I was reading Ross's forthcoming book, The Decadent Society, and Ross makes this point that I think is right, but that doesn't go far enough um, about the death of kind of technological awe that, you know, for a long time, there were these new great technological leaps forward whether it be like the telephone or space travel, people felt this sense of like sublime astonishment. And Ross says, you know, we don't have that anymore. And I think it's true. We don't have that anymore. But I actually think it goes farther than that in that most new technologies um, 
I think fill a lot of people, certainly fill me, but not just fill me with this sort of, you know, deep sense of horror, whether it be social media or um, artificial intelligence or gene editing or mass surveillance, right? Like technology itself has kind of completely given up its liberatory potential, it seems to me, and just become this looming menace. And I guess I'll finally say, and I'm still working out how I'm going to write this, so, you know, maybe I can, you guys can help me, is that I think part of our problem as a society is that when the future itself is a source of threat, you you, you lose any sense of, of optimism and dynamism. It seems to me there are two things going on here. It's It's both fear of what the future may hold and what some of our technological changes may hold, things like social media fakes. But it's also disappointment about what technology hasn't done. I mean, we still just sit in traffic. Um, uh, we still suffer from so many of the same diseases. And, and it feels like Derek Thompson had this piece in The Atlantic that said they've that big tech has failed to remake the physical world. And that feels right to me. So, I mean, first I want to say I'm putting a blurb on my book, Ross Douthat is right, but he doesn't go far enough, Michelle Goldberg. <laughs> um, so this is already – and I don't, want to, I don't want to say too much about the book's thesis. But I mean, I think one of the arguments I was trying to make was trying to find a balance between the spirit of techno-pessimism or just general pessimism that Michelle describes and then this counterbalance, right, which is the arguments made by – most famously figures like Steven Pinker and others that in fact everything's getting better all the time and the only thing that can stop things from getting better is too much doom and gloom from conservatives or progressives. Um, and I mean it strikes me that in fact we've sort of lived through a period not of collapse into dystopia but more of stagnation and, and sort of disappointment where we're constantly promised and told that this is the greatest era of technological innovation ever and the world is changing faster than ever and you know the only thing that's wrong is that people can't adjust to it and adapt to it and keep up. But in fact, the last 30-odd years have been an era where innovation has been incredibly concentrated in this zone of simulation, right, and, com and communication, communication and simulation. And it hasn't stopped, but it's stagnated somewhat in other arenas. And, and out of that stagnation, I think the sort of gap between our cultural expectations for technology and what it's actually delivered, you get a lot of anxiety, derangement, despair, paranoia, and so on. I'm not quite as pessimistic as Michelle, but I do think that we're – I do think we're sort of stuck and a lot of our a lot of our problems reflect a sort of sense of a society cycling through the same arguments, the same ideas and so on in without figuring out where it's going next. It's not that there's no progress or that the past was better than today. It just it really does feel to me like what what is a major problem in our society uh, that technology has solved in our lifetimes? Um, there's probably an answer to that question, but the fact that I can't immediately come up with it, um, I think is part of the point here. I, I guess it's that 
Right, but it, and it's not just that. I mean, you have you have a whole kind of insurgent political campaign, Andrew Yang's, about you know the kind of coming danger of automation, basically the coming danger of robots and what it's going to do to the social fabric. So again, I don't. It's, to me, it's not even so much a question of problems are not being solved. It's that insolvable problems are being created. Yes, but but Yang is is at least for now is sort of wrong. I think about the jobs that robots are destroying that we sort of this is this is sort of the part of what I'm trying to describe with the term decadence where we we live in an era where people are terrified of the prospect of an innovation that's going to cost everyone their jobs but in fact we can't even generate that innovation productivity rates have been stagnant or falling in the US and western Europe for the last 20 years and so we have the fear of the future without actually getting the benefits of the future right because automation would have benefits too it would be massively disruptive but also theoretically improve efficiency and productivity and make everybody richer but we aren't actually getting that except except on a smaller scale um but I mean some of this too is just this question that I think has been I think sharpened f- maybe for progressives by the election of Trump and you know Russia and Facebook and so on but it it is the question of whether you know the 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 kind of innovation that we definitively do have in innovation in communication and simulation is making people happier. I'm curious about when things sort of Turned. I mean, obviously, Trump's election was a big part of it, but I don't know if it was the only thing. If that, what, when there was a moment when, you know, sort of techno pessimism fundamentally set in, or sort of any of the optimism around technology, when exactly that disappeared, and what what it was that drove it away, besides Trump's election. I mean, I, I would certainly put Trump's election on the list and this notion that democracy is at more risk in our country than than I think uh, any of us imagined it would be in our lifetimes, even if, Ross, you think that's a little bit overstated. Um, I would also say that the financial crisis plays a real role here, right? And 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 by many measures, we really haven't recovered from the financial crisis. I mean, the typical American net worth is still lower than it was before the financial crisis. Um, And I guess the third I would add, and and I'm least confident in this one, it's sort of a little squishier. But I I do feel like the internet went from this wondrous thing that allowed a, a kid anywhere to look up any literature or any fact or follow any sports team or any TV show and, you know, uh, to to this thing that we carry around these machines and they're constantly buzzing us and um, this sort of move to mobile and everyone walking around with their heads buried in these little computers does feel to me like part of this story. Yeah, I think – I also think that, that in – in the post-financial crisis era, there was a, a, a temporary sense that Wall Street was bad, but Silicon Valley was still really good. And that was also associated with you know, the sort of immediate political aftermath of the Great Recession was not populism in the West. It was the Arab Spring. And there was this period when people were talking about how, oh, the magic of social media is going to bring down dictatorial regimes around the world. And it's definitely the case that the magic of social media has translated into a new culture of sort of protest and unrest in all kinds of places. But it has also pretty clearly – it hasn't been always that hard for what, you know, especially I think, you know, good liberal Westerners think of as bad actors around the world to sort of 
master and manage internet technologies. But then there's also the dynamic, and I would just, I would go further than you, David. I think it's, yeah, I think in 2011, we were we were only just starting to figure out what social media and the phone in the pocket meant for people's everyday experiences. And now we have sort of a decade of experiences. I think there's sort of a sense of low-grade anxiety and misery that people associate with the internet experience right now that just wasn't the case in the first 10 to 15 years of the internet era. And then, and I think, and then I think the thing that you have to add on top of that, you know, particularly if you're progressive, but maybe not just if you're progressive, is climate change, which makes people literally feel like there might not be a future or their future might be, you know, physically unrecognizable. And that seems particularly, I mean, there's both the existential reality of it, but then there's the political ramifications is that, like, what does it mean if you have, you know, a left that can't imagine a better future? What Then what do you have? The obvious place to end is, well, so how do we get out of this? Uh, or to be more specific about it, what needs to change so that technology plays uh, less of a negative role and more of a positive role? And uh, my answer, which is honest, but I don't think it's complete, is that government needs to play a stronger role in essentially making sure the incentives are right for technology to make our lives better and not worse. But I recognize that, of course, that's my answer because I'm a progressive. I mean, Michelle, I guess, do you share that? Yeah, no, I mean, I think that that is definitely right. And that in a way, the kind of giving up on any illusions about technology is the beginning of that. And so once these companies start to sort of lose their cultural cachet, I think it becomes easier and easier to create a um, political coalition for reining them in. But I think you also have to think of it in bottom-up terms, right? Like I've got, you know, kids right now who are still in the zone of school where they don't need to have phones. They're, you know, they're going to be nine and seven and four soon. And I think we need to become comfortable with the idea that, you know, you have to figure out ways to socially regulate the use of this particular kind of technology um, in a way that we weren't thinking about 10 or 15 years ago. And I think it probably has to start as such things do, around children and childhood and sort of how people are exposed to technology when their minds and bodies are really sort of forming and taking shape. So that's sort of my restrictionist kind of anti-tech view. But then at the same time, I want to pick up on what Michelle said about, you know, the left and the future, right? I, I think the left has gotten into a place on climate change that is, you know, is sort of too despairing, the left solution to climate change is increasingly this sort of unrealistic vision of developed world austerity. And in the end, if we're going to sort of transcend climate change, you ha it has to be through innovation. It has to be through a recovered vision of a sort of abundant future, of a growing future, of a growing human population, of people having more kids on this earth and beyond. And we have to colonize Mars, obviously. Okay, we will leave it there. And now move on to our weekly recommendation when we make a suggestion that is meant to take your mind off of the news of the day. Michelle, this week is your turn. I'm guessing you have a recommendation that does not involve hamsters this week. <laughs> I want to recommend a book called American Spy by Lauren Wilkinson. Um, 
And part of the reason I want to recommend it is because I don't I just sort of chanced upon it. I don't remember it getting that much attention. I think it was well reviewed, but it's the kind of thing that I like picked up browsing at a bookstore and might never have heard of otherwise. And then after I read it was really surprised I had never heard about it. If you like me like thrillers, want to read something that's sort of escapist but not stupid. This book is like if Graham Greene and Spike Lee had a baby. It's about this African-American woman who joins the FBI for all kinds of complicated reasons, um, finds herself stymied there, and then gets drawn into an intelligence operation against the real-life leader of Burkina Faso in the 80s and sort of finds her loyalties split. You know, I think I read it in a day or a day and a half. I'm definitely going to read it. I love spy novels. I I almost feel guilty about how much I like them. (laughs) So the idea of a book that comes with just a little bit of literature credibility is deeply appealing to me. Okay, so Michelle, what's the recommendation again? The recommendation is Lauren Wilkinson's novel, American Spy. That's our show this week. Thank you so much for listening. If you have thoughts or ideas, leave us a voicemail at 347-915-4324. You can also email us at argument at nytimes.com. If you like what you hear, please leave us a rating or review in Apple Podcasts. It really does matter. This week's show was produced by Maddie Foley for Transmitter Media and edited by Sarah Nix. Our executive producer is Greta Cohn. We had help from Tyson Evans, Phoebe Lett, Ian Prasad Philbrick, and Francis Yang. Our theme was composed by Allison Leighton Brown. We'll see you back here next week. We need Obama to come come on the show and make recommendations. Really, that's that's the that's the end game here, and he can fill my slot as the as the right wing <laughs> voice in the Sanders administration. <laughs>